when your object is to take something that you grew up loving and to get back to the feeling, the essential pleasure of what that thing is, nostalgia suddenly becomes the enemy. It becomes an obstacle. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, Southern Detective Benoit Blanc returns to solve another mystery in director Ryan Johnson's whodunit, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. A follow-up to 2019's Knives Out, the film finds Blanc on a billionaire's lavish Greek island at a yearly reunion of a disparate group of friends. When one guest turns up dead, Everyone becomes a suspect and must peel away the layers of their motivations, secrets, and lies. In addition to Glass Onion and Knives Out, Johnson's credits include the feature films Star Wars Episode VIII, The Last Jedi, Looper, The Brothers Bloom, and Brick, and episodes of the television series Terriers and Breaking Bad. He won the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Dramatic Series, for his 2012 Breaking Bad episode, 51. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Johnson spoke with director Phil Lord about filming Glass Onion. Listen on for their spoiler-free conversation. I want to ask you about how this film started. And I, and I specifically want to ask you to talk about the little notebook that you use to like start your projects. <laughs> so I, yeah, I mean, years ago I started, um, and again, thank you guys for being here and Phil, thank you for doing this. Um, it's very cool. I uh, needed an excuse to wear clothes on a Monday. <laughs> so yeah, years ago I started just working in, um, cause I, I, the way I, I write, I'm, uh, I, I spend the first like 80% of the process outlining. So I'm just working in little notebooks and I realized I was falling into a pattern of, um, uh, kind of kicking around and wasting time at the beginning of each project, looking for the perfect notebook to start. And so I, I tried to eliminate that and say, okay, so I just started using um, moleskin uh, pocket-sized sketchbooks. And so I have now just a shelf full of them. Lined or unlined? Unlined. Unlined. And the thicker paper, the sketchbook version, um, which they just discontinued. And so I've been desperately going on eBay, buying up like, I have like 40 of these notebooks. <laughs> like, yeah. So anyway, um, so so I, I work in those for the first 80% of the process and I kind of like, I actually posted on Twitter. If you want to so be so brave as to go on Twitter right now, um, you can look up, I posted the one for Knives Out and I just, I work until I can kind of draw a line and kind of write all the sequences kind of in order and have the whole roadmap laid out in front of me. Uh, and only then can I kind of sit down and actually, the very last step is typing out the script. I'm so jealous. Why? Because as you know, uh, I do the opposite. (laughs) I just gas myself out and write a billion versions of every scene. That seems awesome. And then I give that to Chris (laughs) and make him deal with it. So what 
we're we're here, all these nice people here watch the movie, but there's some people listening to us who have not. So oh, yeah, we're, without we're recording it for anything. a podcast, so I apologize. We're going to talk around spoilers, even though you've, though you've just seen it. It's but gonna was be there a unpleasant. moment when you're like? I, I got it now. Yes, and it's it's a thing that um, that I can't talk about because it's a spoiler. It's basically this essential structure of the movie, um, which is the the few. The I guess it's this will be vague enough. Someone listening to the podcast will just be confused um, and and will not be spoiled. That's but part of it. It's basically like the fugue structure of it. It's it's the notion of could you do this big midpoint twist and do this big narrative gambit and have it not be a drag? Could you have it be something where the second half of the movie is exciting and accelerates the audience forward and involves them more as opposed to makes them feel like, Oh God, really? Um, and that, that was kind of the, um, just kind of the genre wonk part of me, like made me think, uh, could we pull that off? That could be really fun. Well, you have an amazing challenge, which is you have to replicate the success of Knives Out, which is successful because it defies expectations turn after turn. So how do you defy the expectation of defying expectations (laughs) and Uh, and create Well, you've really made a completely different movie that feels like a um, a worthy companion to the first movie but it doesn't feel like oh i'm it's not like airplane 2 i'm you know right. with respect it's you know yeah a lot of it's the same guy <laughs> the director of space. airplane 2 is in the third row <laughs> yeah. and we've just lost him yeah um i grew up watching airplane 2 on hbo it was on three times a day i love it uh the uh, uh well you you nailed it which is um to me and this is why i think the idea of doing a series of these and why right now actually I'm so incredibly jazzed to be kind of jumping into the third one. Um, it all goes entire. Oh, dang. Oh, there. <laughs> we'll see. They know, love notebooks. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it all goes back to the source for me, which, which is Agatha Christie, which is my love of Agatha Christie and of her novels. And, um, also obviously of, of the movies that were being made when I was a kid in the late seventies and early eighties. Um, this movie owes so much to evil under the sun, um, and, uh, death on the Nile and all, uh, a non Christie movie, last of Sheila, which, um, yes, yes. Um, which I will, um, I'm sure lots of people here know, but I will bang the drum for every time I can if anyone is not familiar with the last of sheila it's an incredible whodunit from the 70s it's so 70s it's um but it was written by uh stephen sondheim and anthony perkins oh i love the sound in the audience when they hear that yes please go and look this up um and you'll (laughs) see it because uh it this is going to sound very familiar it's it's james coburn plays like a rich asshole who sends invitations to all of his friends inviting them onto his yacht at this exotic location for a murder mystery party that's how the movie starts and i promise we don't steal much more from it than that but i would Absolutely. It's Diane Cannon and Richard Benjamin and Ian McShane and Raquel Welsh and James Mason. It's just a phenomenal, incredible cast. Um, anyway, last It's a delightful movie that does a really nice hat trick, which is it's entirely of its era, unabashedly, and yet it really inspires and delights people watching it right now. Yeah. And and I notice about your your film and all of your films have like this interesting relationship to nostalgia, which is that you're at once 
honoring and relishing the opportunity to, we just watched the credits. The credits in this film have an homage to an, a bygone era um, with those screen flips. And, and there's something, it's really playful about that. And yet I always find that you're also subverting the, the expectations of, of the genres that you're enjoying, <laughs> you know? And so there's something, so you're like, can we have our cake and eat it too? <laughs> well, yeah, I think that the trick to enjoying your cake is to taste the cake, not to sit around and talk about how great the cake was you had 50 years ago. <laughs> and I think that, that I think is something that, um, so when we've talked a lot about this. It's something we both, I think, share as a sensibility, which is we have all these things that we grew up loving, whether it's uh, whodunits or Star Wars movies or, you know, what have you. And I, th I think the trick is, and this is where, although nostalgia is a pleasurable feeling, it can have its, its nice stuff, it, when your object is to take something that you grew up loving and to get back to the feeling, the essential pleasure of what that thing is truly, nostalgia suddenly becomes the enemy. It becomes an obstacle because what you're trying to do is get back to what people must have felt like when they were reading Agatha Christie in the 30s, when she was writing to her time and when she was writing about society in the moment. And when she, you know, or for me with Star Wars, it was trying to get back to the actual feeling of being a kid and watching The Empire Strikes Back. And it was fucking terrifying. It was, it flipped my world upside down and made me feel the way that, the, you know, the, the, the way that Joseph Campbell describes that fairy tales and myths are supposed to make children feel, which is it's genuinely supposed to evoke the terror of going through these life changes. And, um, and, and, and fear when, and wonder, fear and wonder. Absolutely. And when you're trying to get back to that source and say, it's, it's like, and we remember in Tron, like when they find the glowing river and they're drinking from it, like we're drinking from the source. You're trying to get back to that with a genre. And, so the object with subversion, subverting expectations is not to subvert expectations and to fuck with it. The object is to get back to the pure pleasure of the origin of it. And that requires, especially if it's something that's had layers of veneer put over it over the years, or that we're used to seeing through this kind of hazy lens of nostalgia, that requires blowing the dust off and shaking it sometimes and engaging with the audience, which is the exact same thing, the original audience. So it's what... Empire did back in its day is what Christie was doing in her moment. She was shaking audiences. She was engaging with them. She wasn't creating kind of like a hazy, cotton-filtered kind of nostalgic view. She was trying to blow people's minds. And the notion that that's what genre should be doing and that's how you get back to what the pleasure of it is. So, yeah. Yeah. To love it, you have to destroy it. <laughs> well, you have to build it. You have to, you have to engage with it. You have to make it alive. You know what I mean? You can't just remember it. You have to make it alive. That to me is what is what's truly exciting about, um, about genre. It's why I love it. It's why, uh, you know, I've made so many genre movies. It's why I'm definitely why I'm making these, you know? I, I, one of the things I, I think is so exciting is the movie feels so modern to me. And it's, it's obviously, um, your, you're from the future and you knew that it this week <laughs> um, there would be a tech meltdown of epic proportions. More than one. <laughs> 
Um, but it, it, it feels at once nostalgic and incredibly modern. And I really just want to, I'm curious about your opinion. Are people good? <laughs> like, are we good? Are we good? Like relative to other animals. Relatives to are we like, like dog? average to dogs? No, we're horrible relative we're horrible. to me. Yeah, yeah. I can never tell if dogs are like great or they're just tricking us into thinking they're great. There's a fine line. It's a man. fine There's line. A fine line. You know, you feel you're good. I can tell you you're good. <laughs> you're okay. I mean, as far as you know. Um, but but I'm interested in, you know, the the when you're telling a murder mystery, part of it is you get to explore a bunch of characters and underst- and and ask whether they're capable of killing somebody or not. That's what you're spending the entire movie looking at them, yeah. wondering, like, they probably could do it. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting, though, is, like, um, yes, yes, but, not yes and, yes, but, uh, the... Um, if you look at the, and this fascinated me when I started really thinking about like the murder mystery genre, because yes, you're setting up a situation where all of the people are potential killers. What's fascinating though, and this is why I think um, that, the, so if you look at the actual dramatic structure of the first act of most of, for instance, Agatha Christie's books, there's always a person at the top of the food chain who is obviously going to be the one who's going to get killed. And everybody else, the, the first act uses the, its real estate to set up why, that, why all the others want to kill them. What's fascinating is if you look at where, like in a Hitchcock-type way, like with Psycho with Norman Bates, if you look at where Christie is always putting your sympathies, it's always with the people who want to kill the guy, the person at the top. And it's always, you're, it, it's because it's dramatically necessary that you understand why each one of them would have a motive. And so it requires you just by the gravity of the story to say, yes, I feel the same rage they feel against this jerk who's like keeping them from so-and-so or who's cheating on their so-and-so or what have you. It's a very interesting thing. It, it gets you to identify with wanting this person dead as opposed to fearing for them and fearing all of these people as as others. And that way it's a very kind of like human involving, so even in its darkest moments, it's kind of bringing you into, yes, all of us have these, have these base thoughts. And, um, yeah. So anyway, yeah. That that is a very typically generous answer and from a very generous person. And, and you feel it in your pictures that you're, you're deeply invested in your characters and you're on their side. You know, yeah, not all, not all of them, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. You know, the the blackbird playing. No, but you do have to. You do have to. And no, I think it's true though. You have to find your way into all of them. It's true. Yeah, even the worst characters. It's you. It's almost most necessary with the worst characters that you see your, the aspect of yourself in them that you're indicting and that you engage with that. I think. Right? Yeah, I think that's true. I think you can tell. It, it's getting to know you a little bit and and watching your films. They're generous. You know, I think that's a really essential quality in a filmmaker. You have to be able to be kind. You have to like those people as as um, disgusting as they are. Um, tell me about some some uh, some wonderful people that you've known for a long time. That your filmmaking team 
is is largely folks that you've made a lot of movies with, um, starting with fellow producer Rom and and uh, and Steve Yedlin, your DP. You want to talk about like what your process is with your team? It's a team sport. Yeah, I mean, I kind of you know I. I grew up my first kind of way into making movies was just spending weekends with my high school buddies making them making movies with a group of friends and that to me filmmaking was a social activity that you did with people that you loved because you wanted to hang out and make something cool and um and I've been really lucky that over the years kind of we've, we've built this little family of people. There's Rom Bergman, who's my producer, who I've been working with since my first movie, Brick. Um, my cinematographer, Steve Yedlin, we met my freshman year in the dorms at SC. He was still a senior in high school. And um, my composer, Nathan Johnson, who did the beautiful score for this movie, were cousins. And we've been literally making movies together since we were 10 years old. And it's um, it's it's beautiful just to have kind of this group around you. And I don't know, I feel like it, uh, and we were all, always kind of keeping our antenna up to make sure we don't fall into ruts, but I feel like the best version of that is always that having that kind of comforting base of people who you have a shorthand with and you can, who you can be tremendously honest with each other, um, that helps push you forward. I mean, you and Chris is a similar thing, I think, probably. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you you become dependent on the the process on the back and forth right and it explodes the myth that these things come from the godlike brain of a single person <laughs> you know and i think that like i think you are one of the few people that i would assign the the moniker of auteur to because I do think these things start in your brain in a notebook pacing around your house. <laughs> but I but I noticed that it really is, you know, a collaboration with all of these oh, incredible yeah. department heads and, and incredible yeah. cast. Absolutely. No, the whole thing becomes, I mean, it's it's entirely a like you said, it's a team sport. It's all about the people you gather. And starting with your crew and extending to the cast and all the way through all of it, you know, that's kind of what it's all about. Was there something that you guys found especially challenging or surprising making this movie? Um, I mean, the the um, I mean, like anyone here who's worked on anything in the past few years, the COVID restrictions and and what that makes does, it better makes it so much better. It just brings everyone <laughs> don't have to see people. Yeah, and do it in my house. It's so nice. It's directed via Zoom. It was very nice. Um, Literally phoning it in for two years. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, even that, I mean, there is, um, I mean, we shot this movie, the first half of our shoot was in Greece for all the location stuff. And then we moved to Belgrade in Serbia to shoot the, um, all the sets basically on, on stage. And the whole time you're sitting there going, when do we get to Belgrade? Yes. <laughs> when can we leave stupid Greece? <laughs> Dumb Greece. I love, Bel- I actually, I love Belgrade. We made my second movie, the brothers bloom. We shot there and I have like really beautiful memories of that city. It's, um, and so, uh, the thing was we were there right smack dab in the middle of the Delta surge. And so the numbers were terrible and we wanted to obviously keep everybody safe. We didn't want to get shut down. And so we were, um, all very much locked down in this very nice hotel in Belgrade. And so to blow off steam, we would rent out the rooftop bar on weekends and the whole cast would just go 
to this rooftop bar, get incredibly drunk and play mafia together. And <laughs> be careful up there. It's yeah, no kidding. It was uh, and like Janelle Monet would show up and like literally dressed in full like like Sherlock Holmes with a fake mustache and like the pipe. It was insane. She travels. So I swear to God, she must travel with a steamer trunk full of costumes. It's amazing to me. She's um, so talented. She's incredible. Does she also need to be talented at getting dressed up? <laughs> yes, I know it's unfair. It's very fair. She works hard at it. She's uh yeah. But that whole cast, who were you the most scared to work with? <laughs> Probably I don't I was I was at first I was very intimidated by Janelle because I was a fan of her music and just her as an artist. I I feel like there was kind of a because, you know, it's all about it. She's, she's like Prince. It's like building a mystique around herself. And she has like that kind of, you know. And then, of course, then once I started working with her, she's the most awesome down to earth person in the world. But it, it, I think, I think I was probably most nervous showing up. It's on what you like, hope is true. Yeah. yeah right. Like yeah. I, when I notice her performances, I'm like, oh, she's totally in control of how open she's going to be or how closed, how presentational, yeah. how, how, you know, relaxed and you, and it's really exciting to watch because you're like, I wonder, I wonder if she's mad at me. (laughs) I can't tell. No, I was very mad at you, Phil, through the whole thing. She wouldn't let it go. It was very weird. Actually. She kept saying, I'm revealing a lot about myself. Lord. That's how she got into character. (laughs) No, but you really get a sense. And what's so special about this movie is it gives all of these actors a chance to show different facets of themselves. And, and I think Janelle in particular, um, in an exciting way. And, um, yeah, it was fun, but it was fun like letting Kate Hudson loose on this role and having her really uh, her comic chops are. And we talked about Last of Sheila. I mean, I feel like she's channeling Diane Cannon in like the best way possible. She's just amazing. You can see a lot of her her she's mom. She's been studying I feel like, this also. Uh, people for this role probably oh her God. entire life. Kate gave the best description of her performance for Birdie, like her approach. She said, "I realize Birdie understands every third word." And I'm like. <laughs> Really, and after I heard that, like you just watch her reaction shots, and I was just laughing out loud in the other room. It's so good. Yeah, she's faking it. She's totally fake. She's like, oh. yeah, she's yeah, it's amazing. Tell me about uh, what the heck a glass onion is, <laughs> other than a great Beatles song, uh, which I guess are those, are, they, those come real cheap, right? Oh yeah, piece of cake. Yeah, Beatles songs. Yeah, yeah. If the next movie is like ne- named after like a Stephen Foster song, like a something in the public domain, you'll know why. It's a good idea. Yeah. 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 No, um, it's old. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, after. I actually, when I was writing, because I I wanted to find like a central metaphor that Blanc could beat to death like a dead horse and I figured for reasons that are clear because you've just seen the movie I hit upon this thing of okay it's densely layered but it's center is visible at all times so something made of glass and I thought well he has this island does he have like a glass palace or a glass castle on the top of it or a glass and I literally got out my phone and searched my music app for the word glass and um, with all the Apologies to Blondie, my my favorite song with the word glass in the title came up at the top. And um, yeah, I, I was like, oh, could we call it glass onion? Yeah, why not? It's a glass onion. So, And, and uh, the surprising thing to me was I didn't think that um, Beatles deep tracks existed, but I started showing the script to people. I was shocked how many people um, I showed it to didn't, weren't familiar 
with the song. I think I just assumed everybody knew Glass Onion. Everybody knew had heard every Beatles song thousands of I times. I guess so, yeah. But yeah, no, good. I guess Glass Onion is a, is a quote unquote deep cut, but it's such a it's such a banger. It's such an amazing song. To me, it's such a comforting thought <laughs> that you look really hard at something and you can't understand it. And maybe that's because there's nothing there. It'll <laughs> <laughs> be, it's life. Oh, that's depressing. What have we done? <laughs> oh, I didn't find it depressing at all. I was no? like, I knew it. <laughs> Everyone's on your, dumb. On your deathbed. <laughs> I knew it. We're all idiots. They're all as dumb as yeah. me. Thank okay. God. Um, so tell me about, you know, um, what? Are you out of questions? Did we I'm get exactly the end of, of your mental list? It's not that I'm Are out of questions. Re- okay, tell me about They're in my actors. phone that is in my, you, <laughs> you know, that's in my phone. bot I that I'm sitting judge. on right now. I'm not going to judge. <laughs> um, I, already, I already asked you all the important ones. Are we good? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think we're good. We can let these poor people go home. <laughs> uh, come on. I believe in you. You can think of a question. Well, look, we're at the Directors Guild. I want to know, like, I, this was an actual question I prepared, which is, I want to know, like, what your day is like. Because uh, directors don't get to watch each other do it. This is actually a great, I asked, because I got to do this for uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, I asked him exactly the same question. I'm like, what do you actually do when you get to say? He Just goes, like, well, I you up know, cool. I try and engage with the, I was, no, literally, you show what up, do you, what do you do? What do you like, do? What do you eat? Like, what do you eat for breakfast? Yeah, yeah. Are you a big <laughs> breakfast guy or you go in, you go in cold? When I'm working, I, I I do eat eat breakfast generally, so I get something. But the 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 actual process on set is, um, yeah. I I have, the thing is because we, you don't get to watch other directors work, I don't know if this will be if the next two minutes will be boring or will be interesting because I don't know whether it's like oh yeah, this is what everybody does. I'll give a live play by play about whether right, it's boring okay, or interesting right, thank while you, you talk. Thank you. Okay, no pressure. So. I, and by the way, when I started making movies, when I made my first film, Brick, I did not know how to work with, I didn't know what a blocking rehearsal was. I had just grown up making shorts. It was my first time working with real actors. So I would just set the camera up and when the actor showed up on set, I would go, okay, you stand here, you say this line, you walk over this mark, you say this line, and then you walk out. And they were so generous, they didn't yell at me. I got to brothers bloom and started working with like rachel vice and and <laughs> how to go it was, it was not good it was uh you know it was, it, they were they were incredibly lovely and generous and also i quickly realized that's not how you work with with actors so um for me the biggest learning curve has been the blocking process and it's now also become the biggest joy of it because i've started studying especially for movies like like this where you have eight or nine characters in a huge space just talking to each other studying directors who are incredibly good at staging. I think I used to think entirely in terms of cool shots and now I think in terms of staging and watching like the modern master of it is obviously Spielberg and the way that he creates frames by the staging of his actors and keeps it alive and he kind of emulates the best of like Orson Welles in terms of creating depth in the frame but also like Michael Curtiz like you watch how um, in his films he would have dialogue scenes with four or five characters and they would be in, in blocked and staged in such a way where he could let the whole thing play out in a single shot and it work. So um, so anyway, I, I will show, I, I do storyboard. I come to, I come every day with like some notion of some storyboarded version of what 
how it's going to play in my head. Do you have the overhead schematic? Sometimes, if it's complicated enough, I do. But generally, I'll do these horribly pathetic chicken scratch like line drawings of like you would laugh like the these storyboards, I, which I've also posted a few on on Elon Musk's twi- Musk's Twitter. If you want to go and check it out, um, so. Uh, so uh, I'll show up with that in my head, but then um, you know we'll bring the actors on and I'll kind of step them through. Okay, I was thinking this and this, but let's play it out and let's see what happens. And then we'll walk through the scene with them going through the blocking I had in my head. And if something doesn't feel right, we'll call it out and we'll change it. Um, and then we'll say, okay, thank you. And we'll let the actors go get dressed or finish their makeup. And my DP and I, Steve, uh, Steve Yudley and I will then go through the shots. And it's a similar thing where I'll have my shots that I've kind of figured out, but if the blocking has changed or something has uh, altered and, you know, sometimes I'll, 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 or I'll do, you'll just, but I'll put the lenses on the finder and I'll kind of like, um, or general, I'll put a zoom lens on the finder so I can switch between different lengths and I'll go around and I'll find, okay, we first, first setup, we start here and we move to here and somebody will like mark and chalk, like exactly where I start and where I go to and the height I was at. Um, and then they'll set up the dolly and they'll set it to be able to do exactly that move. And we'll kind of go through it and work it out kind of shot by shot, basically. Um, so yeah. you blow the first three hours of the day. First three hours of the day are gone. Well, that's breakfast. Complete yeah, waste. Yeah, that's at craft service. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that can really that can that those 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 blocking ideas like they can if they fall apart, you know, it can take a good chunk to just get it back. Well, together. what you don't want is chaos, and that though I feel like coming in with a plan though, coming in with like a very strong handed plan is is the key because you come in with a notion of of this is what I thought would work and here's why and if it doesn't then it's not like let's blow it all up go walk around wherever go wherever you want it's like okay why doesn't this feel right let's talk about this what would feel right okay and and I feel like especially if you're working with really good actors which I've been really blessed to do you you can communicate them with them on the level of okay this is awesome. I, in order to keep everything on the same side of the line so that suddenly we don't have eight more setups to do by the end of the day, I need to keep you on this side over here. Is there some version of that we can figure out where that happens over here? And they'll work with you and they'll collaborate with you. And so, yeah. I mean, the big thing is the preparation that goes into having that plan means you've thought about the scene and how to realize it right. with movement. Right. Right. And so then you bring to this, you bring to set. Ideas. <laughs> they bring ideas and you guys work it out. But if you go to set and you're just kind of winging it or your ideas don't have deep reasoning, they don't, they aren't out of story and character. I think that's the trick. And you're screwed. Yeah, I think that's a trick is to know the dramatic intent of every scene and to know what you're going for with the scene, I think. For me, what that means is showing up with shots and blocking. For other people, it might not, but I feel like I, what I can't imagine is showing up on set not knowing what you're going for in terms of what the scene is supposed to feel like and knowing kind of the, the bullseye on the dartboard that you're aiming for, I think. It's especially hard when you're working with, you know, a screenwriter that you barely know. Yeah. No, I've never had to do that, so I can only imagine. Guys, uh, give it up t- for writer, director, Thank you guys producer, for coming. Ryan Johnson. And thanks, Phil. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. 
We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.